You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Devin Lincoln, and I'm an attorney in Lozano Smith's Monterey office. I'm here today with two of our specialists in labor and employment law, and I'm really excited to introduce them both to you. First of all, I'd like to introduce Darren Kamea. Darren, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Darren Kamea. I work in Lozano Smith's Los Angeles office, and I focus on labor and employment matters for school districts and college districts. Great. Thank you, Darren. Next, I want to introduce the man who puts the Lozano in Lozano Smith, Lou Lozano. Hi, Lou. Good morning, Devin and Darren. Happy to be with you this morning. Uh, I do quite a bit of labor relations and work on other issues involving public agencies and absolutely love what I do. Great. Thank you. So today, we're going to talk about an interesting moment for public employee unions and their public employers. In January, the Los Angeles teachers went on strike for the first time in 30 years, and there's talk of a potential strike for Oakland teachers. We're going to talk about what's going on at the bargaining table right now and how this moment is unique. To get started, we're going to talk about a landmark case that the U.S. Supreme Court handed down last year, a case that we all refer to as Janus. Now, we discussed Janus in a podcast last summer, and I don't want to cover all the ground that was covered there. But before we get into what's going on currently, I would like to start by briefly talking about what Janus was and why it was such a big deal. Um, Lou, could you start us off? Absolutely. Uh, Janus was a sea change in the laws impacting agency fee and the right of unions to collect money from people who are in their bargaining unit but choose not to join the union for whatever reason. We probably should establish some definition of terms that are easily confused. Bargaining unit members are people in that group of employees that are represented by the union. Bargaining unit members are not required to join unions and have never been required to join unions. However, in some states, California being one of them, they have been required to pay an agency fee for service Mm -hmm. if they chose not to join the union. Mm -hmm. So bargaining unit members are all the employees. Union members are people who choose to join the union. And agency fee payers are people who belong to the bargaining unit but choose not to belong to the union. This this sea change of Janus, of course, was the US Supreme Court declaring that under the United States Constitution, employees could not be forced to pay agency fees. And unions could not be required or could not require their bargaining unit members to pay a service fee or any other kind of fee to the union if they chose not to. This was a significant impact in, in the law and actually overturned a long-standing precedent. Would you like to get into that? Or? Yeah, so tell me about what was the precedent previously? About 41 years ago, there was this very same issue came before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. 1977, the question of the constitutionality of unions charging 
service fees, agency fees, whatever you want to call them, to people who choose not to join the union, whether that is constitutional. In 1977, the court issued an opinion saying that it was constitutional for unions to charge a service fee or agency uh, fee to people who chose not to join them. Janus completely turned that around. It was a complete reversal and, uh, and, and changed the law dramatically throughout the United States. So as I understand it, Abood was basically saying um, bargaining unit members are receiving a service from the union even if they're not members, whereas Janus turned that on its head and talked about free speech issues. Is that right? That is correct. And the, and the premise of the Abood case was that all members of the bargaining unit benefited from the services that the unions provided in collective bargaining, in grievance adjudications, in representing employees in disciplinary matters. That there was a service the union provided to all members. The argument that the plaintiffs made in the Janus case is this forced people to pay a fee to an organization in which they did not believe in their philosophy or their approach. And the, the court found this to be unconstitutional. Okay. So I have a question for both of you, which is, what does this decision tell us about what the Supreme, about the Supreme Court and its current take on labor issues? Lou, do you want to start on that? I certainly can. It's no surprise to anyone that the current Supreme Court has taken a sharp shift to the right. And uh, this decision impacting uh, labor is quite dramatic. Uh, certainly in California, and I think those states where agency fee was a factor, uh, unions received substantial amounts of revenue from non-members, the agency fee payers, and were able to engage in political activities with that. Now, there is a, the right of non-members to receive reimbursements from the union for its political activities. Okay. My friends in, in the unions tell me there was very little money that was actually reimbursed, but employees had a right to do that. Uh, the potential for the unions is that all of that money received from the non-union members, the agency fee payers, service fee payers, uh, the risk is that that money could go away. Okay. Darren, do you want to add anything to that? Sure. <clears throat> well, I think that this is indicative of at least the majority of the current Supreme Court's movement towards viewing rights as matters of individualization versus group rights. And this case is uh, a good example of the Supreme Court's promotion of individual choice, and in this case regarding union affiliation. The Supreme Court, whether one agrees with them or not, did take the position that it is not necessarily a death knell to uh, to unions, um, the fact that they can't compel fair share fees to be paid. But the decision explains that, at least in the Supreme Court's decision uh, and opinion, effective and responsive unions will necessarily and, and naturally result in continued union membership. And I think we're seeing some uh, effects of that in the activities of unions nowadays. Okay, interesting. Um, Lou, did you want to add to that? I was going to add to that that uh, I've had some conversations with my friends who are in union leadership positions, and they tell me that to date, 
it has had very little impact here in California, that they have not seen the mass exodus from the unions that uh, all were anticipating with this decision coming down. That's interesting. Okay. Well, that's actually great because the next thing I want to talk about is how Genesis is playing out in California specifically. So first off, Darren, um, even though this is a very big change in the law and it's one that goes right to the heart of how unions fund their activities, this wasn't unanticipated, right? Um, I mean, I think we all thought that this was a possible outcome given the tenor of the court that we just discussed. How did California prepare for Janus and how has it dealt with it since? That's a good question, Devin. And as most people know, the court system does not move at a fast pace. We knew the Janus decision was pending for quite a number of months. And while it was pending and while uh, the state of California especially was anticipating a decision that was going to be adverse to unions or viewed that way, the legislature on the state level actually enacted a couple of laws, uh, and many were considered that would protect the union's rights and promote the union's access to members to maintain membership and to uh, soften the blow that Janus might have. And so Janus came out in uh, June, on June 27th, I believe, of 2018. And uh, uh, around the same time, I believe even on the same day, the governor signed SB 866, which was a law that uh, made some big changes regarding public employers' deductions of union dues. And among the changes is a requirement for public employers, schools, colleges, municipalities to rely on the representations of their unions regarding whether or not an employee wants to be a member. And in prior years, that was something that the employer was more involved in. The new California law uh, takes that role completely out of the employer's hands and uh, requires the employer to rely on the union's representations as to who is chosen to be a member and who is not. There was also um, a bill a few months before that that was signed into law, AB 119, that promoted and protected union access to new employees so that when there was an onboarding that took place for new employees for a public agency, the union would have guaranteed um, access the, the method and the time and, and, and way that was done would be negotiated between the union and the employer, but there's definitely ways for the union to um, speak to the employees when they're newly hired to promote union membership. So is it fair to say that lawmakers in California seem to have done what they can to protect the power of public employee unions post-Janus, and do we expect that to continue? Well, I, I do think that they've done uh, quite a bit to protect the union's rights to um, have access to employees and to promote membership. I do think that it's going to continue. We in California have a new governor, a new state superintendent of education, both with philosophies aligned with the Democratic majority in the legislature and likely to promote the same policies, yes. Lou, do you think that has something to do with what you were just describing, that there has not been a big exodus from union membership or paying of agency fees? Well, as Darren mentioned, the courts move at a very slow pace, but society tends to move at an even slower pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's had the impact that, that the groups or the immediate uh, short-term impact that the groups who 
Brothogenes decision may have expected. Uh, I think this brings pressure on the unions to continue to demonstrate the value of services they provide to their members. And, and that could bring about other pressures in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that leads to what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about the teacher strikes in Los Angeles, potential strike in Oakland, and whether there's a connection with Janice. I know many people are comparing the L.A. strike to the strikes that hit in some of our redder states like West Virginia and Kansas last year, statewide strikes, I believe. The issue being raised by the unions there, I know, was a perceived chronic underfunding of schools. Lou, what do you think is behind the current unrest here in California? You know, it's very hard to say um, if there's any direct causal relationship. I think that many people believe that there is a significant uh, underfunding of, of public services, education, the public infrastructure. You know, we, we see problems with roads deteriorating. We see schools that uh, are underfunded and unable to uh, provide programs or salaries that are competitive uh, with the private sector. Uh, that kind of pressure will continue. Whether there's a causal relationship with Janice, is, it's too early to say. I think there are some out there who were predicting that because unions are, will be forced to demonstrate their value, they may engage in divisive tactics. I'm not sure that that would apply across the board. That could apply in certain isolated cases, but there could be other factors in those agencies that are experiencing uh, labor unrest that contribute to it, notwithstanding Janice. We do know we've had a, a period of a relative labor tranquility in California. Mm-hmm. Whether we see us heading into strife remains to be seen. Interesting. So I want to ask you both. Do you see the LAUSD strike and settlement with the statewide strikes in other states? Do you see those things impacting labor negotiations in California, regardless of what the causes of those efforts have been? And how do you see that impact? Lou, do you want to start? I'll, I'll jump in here. I think the visibility, the public exposure of that kind of unrest does resonate in various public agencies. We haven't seen uh, too much unrest among uh, non-school district local agencies. We see it mostly in the, in the public education, probably because mm-hmm. there are larger numbers of employees that are being represented. But these tensions that exist in L.A., that uh, exist in Oakland, tend to feed those unrests that have not possibly bubbled to the surface in other agencies. I do think, however, the visibility and, and the publicity gives more strength to that kind of movement and uh, may spawn other kinds of, of strikes in other places. Darren, how do you see that? You're on the ground there in L.A. Well, I'd have to say that it, it is having an impact um, and it will have an impact. Part of it's my belief. Part of it's actually seeing what's happening here in L.A. But the labor movement is called a movement for a reason. And it, like any movement, not just the labor movement, feeds on the enthusiasm and, um, and campaigning of the people who are promoting it. And the LAUSD strike provided a very good example of a very effective uh, movement. 
LAUSD's teachers union, UTLA, was able to get what appeared to be the entire city um, standing, quote unquote, in support with teachers. And you had uh, morning drive DJs on non-news stations uh, promoting the teacher strike. And you had billboards, you had leaflets and pamphlets. You had uh, thousands of picketers. And, uh, you know, with today's electronic social media environment, you had Facebook and Twitter having posts from, from everyone and their friends. And as, as I've said before, if you have 30,000 teachers telling two friends each to post something or, or follow it on, on Twitter or Facebook, you have already uh, 90,000 people who are supporting teachers. And communications is something that I think is going to be much more important for public employers to address in the future when you have a movement. And movements um, take a while to catch on, but I believe that the UTLA strike here was, uh, in light of the Janus decision, a perfect way for them to show that the unions are, are helpful and capable and, and necessary to make a change that's very difficult to make. And we have school funding issues that are a, a much bigger issue than just uh, LAUSD, UTLA has helped to change that conversation. Interesting. Let me add to Darren's comment that I think there's a widespread public perception that that strike was very successful. Hmm. And where there are tensions in other school districts in the state that, that see the results of that strike having a benefit to the employees, it could very well reinforce that feeling, that uh, perception that labor conflict will improve the conditions in those other districts that are experiencing that tension. Hmm, that's that's really interesting. Okay, so my next couple of questions have to do um, with some specifics about what you're both actually seeing at the bargaining table right now. The first one is, how are you seeing Janice specifically come up at the bargaining table? Lou, do you want to start? Sure. Um, certainly, most collective bargaining agreements contain language regarding agency fees that was invalidated by the Janus decision. So cleaning up collective bargaining agreements is, is critical. I think it's uh, important to have an agreement that, that accurately reflects the current state of the law. Now, in a number of places, I've seen the unions come forward initially to propose that cleanup, and I think that's a positive thing. In some places where that hasn't happened, it sometimes it's been an oversight. But there are also provisions that are potential landmines for uh, public agencies. Because, because of the laws in California that give the unions the ability to, to make a determination who's a member, who's not a member, that issue now has been shifted, I believe, away from the school districts and to the unions, or away from public agencies into the unions. I think it's dangerous if public agencies incorporate provisions in their collective bargaining agreement that give them any responsibilities other than what's stated in the law so that they don't get themselves caught between the right to work forces and the union forces in another legal battle. So cleaning up collective bargaining agreements, is, I think, is, is critical. So, Darren, I'm going to ask you a different question. Are you seeing efforts at the table to add language that would give unions more involvement and input? 
into um, policy in general. Right. I, I have seen that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the, the changing uh, operations of our school districts uh, in California with the LCFF funding formula and the LCAP um, at different school districts, you have the need to involve many more stakeholders. And with the additional funding that's intended to help certain underserved communities, you have the ability to have new programs initiated, uh, perhaps new teachers or other folks hired to serve those populations. And and the method of um, service as well as what services is being provided are things that I see unions trying to um, have more influence over, oftentimes in a great way. I mean, you want to get buy-in from employees with new initiatives, and it's very difficult to do, or it can be much more difficult if you have uh, opposition or resistance from either the employees or their leadership. The LAUSD strike is a good example of this as well, in that part of the settlement dealt with charter school issues and the creation of a task force to deal with uh, potential limitations on um, the issuance of charters. And notably, that issue itself is not something that's within the scope of bargaining, but it was such a concern for teachers that, you know, the union and the, the district determined that was going to be important to seal the deal. Okay, interesting. So my next question is, I know there have always been public employees who want to be in a union, and then there's always been the dissenters, those who don't want to be in the union, the right to work, uh, arguments that Lou just mentioned. How is that tension playing out now in light of Janice? And do we see that at the table right now? Why don't I jump in um, into this question here? The um, union currently has an obligation to represent all members of the bargaining unit, whether or not they are dues payers, whether or not they are members of the union. So that right exist in independence. So they have to engage in collective bargaining. I know there's some discussions out there about unions charging non-members for additional services, for example, representing them in grievance procedures or representing them in disciplinary matters. I haven't had the experience of those proposals, seeing those proposals at the collective bargaining table. Uh, but I know there's been some talk out there and, and perhaps others have seen that. Uh, proposals come in that uh, would charge. I tend to think that the employer should stay out of that issue rather than getting caught up uh, as between those employees who support the union and those who oppose the union. I think we're best advised for our clients to simply let the union hash those issues out between their members and non-members. I I would agree if I can jump in. And I I would have to say that, you know, the issues of uh, whether or not a union is abiding by its duty of fair representation are very important, but not uh, questions that are resolved by the employer. And while it may be difficult for an employer to to, uh, hear about stories of these nature, of this, this nature, we have clear laws preceding Janus and SB 866, especially, that really restricts the ability for an employer to have any kind of discussion with employees about being a member or not. And as far as proposals that might come across the table, it is possible that there be a proposal that dealt with the rights or benefits 
afforded to members of the union versus non-members. I would suggest that um, along with the terms of membership, that be something that is addressed within the agreement between the union and its members versus the district and the union. Because whether or not someone has a, a rep from a particular union or from someplace else is not usually the issue for the employer. It's whether or not they have a rep or not. Yeah. You know, the fractures we see in our society in general are, are playing themselves out in with our public mm-hmm. agency employers. And certainly tensions can exist. And there may be non-union members who feel harassed or discriminated against by their unions. Uh, we need to remember that public agencies need to provide a safe work environment for all of its employees, free of harassment, so that people can do their jobs in an appropriate manner. So those kinds of tensions that can lead to conflict should be dealt with in the personnel arena, mm-hmm. just as any other tensions, whether people simply don't like each other as people or don't believe in each other's philosophies. We don't have to like each other when we work together, but we have to work together effectively. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I understand that there are several cases now where plaintiffs are seeking refunds of their fair share fees or, or dues that were paid in the past. SB 866, meanwhile, requires districts to accept the union's word for it that dues were authorized. So if the district's payroll has deducted dues without authorization from an employee organization, who's on the hook? Lou? Well, that may depend upon whether or not the district made an error in reliance on the information provided by the unions. Remember in California, under SB 866, employers have to rely on the union in making dues deductions from its employees. So if the union says a member or employee is a member, then the employer has the obligation to do the dues deduction. If the employer has made a mistake, that the union has indicated a particular employee was not a member of the union, but the payroll department made a mistake by deducting dues, the district's probably going to be on the hook Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may be able to recover the dues that were wrongly paid to the employer through a legal action if the union refused to reimburse for unjust enrichment, that they weren't entitled to that money to begin with. Mm -hmm. If, however, the union has indicated that an employee is a member of the union and the district has relied upon that representation or that agency has relied upon that representation, then it's incumbent upon the union to defend and hold the public agency harmless for any deductions that were made. Hmm. So the battle really boils down to a fight between the employee and the union with the district should be sitting on the sidelines watching it play out. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, Darren, um, I mentioned that there's some of this litigation ongoing already. Can you tell me a little bit about those cases and where they might lead? Sure. So there have been a number of cases filed in different parts of the the country regarding union membership in the aftermath of the Janus decision. There are three types of litigation or lawsuits that I've seen. One is about trying to get reimbursed um, for pre-Janus union dues or agency fee dues that were deducted. And what those cases are arguing is that 
uh, even before Janus was decided, there were some other Supreme Court decisions that made it clear it was uh, questionable, for the Supreme Court at least, whether or not those agency fees could be compelled. And because uh, of the Janus decision, these plaintiffs are arguing that unions knew or should have known that they couldn't compel those agency fees and that um, they need to be reimbursed. In California, we do have a law that came into play in late 2018, SB 846, and that provided uh, state and local employers and unions with legal immunity from any lawsuits filed under state law for reimbursement for pre-Janus fees and dues. So we're unlikely to see that type of case, at least in state court in California. There may be federal claims, uh, but so far we haven't seen that, or I have not. A second type of lawsuit is regarding the membership opt-out window. And there typically is um, an agreement between the union and its member that it will be a member or he or she will be a member for a certain length of time, usually a, a year at a time. And then at the end of that year, there's a window where uh, during which the employee can opt out of the union or, or leave the union. And there are plaintiffs who've sued over that type of arrangement or hurdles procedurally that have been placed in terms of opting out, saying that effectively the agreement and the, the small opt-out window or difficult opt-out window is equivalent to no opt-out. And so it's a compelled speech claim as well. Third, we're seeing a couple of uh, claims coming up regarding the membership benefits levels. And that's something that Lou was mentioning, which is that there are some unions that are proposing that non-members have a different level of benefits under the uh, union arrangement than, than union members, for example, with regard to representation. And we've seen some proposals or some letters where unions are saying that um, non-members would have to pay back union dues that are in arrears and, an, and or an hourly rate uh, for a union rep during a meeting or a hearing if they want. And so <clears throat> we'll see where that goes as well. Okay. Okay. So you just described three kinds of cases. Cases about recovering fees already paid, disputes about quitting a union, and differential benefits for different types of workers. Want to make any predictions about what will happen if any of those cases make it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, it's interesting because uh, even today you hear stories about how uh, uh, predictions are made that cases will be lost at the trial court level, the court of appeals level, and then at the Supreme Court, it's going to be a different story. I do think at the Supreme Court, you're going to get likely a denial of the claims for retroactive pay. I, I just think that's, as a practical matter, going to be impossible for that to roll out. And I do think that the court does take the implications uh, and impact of its decisions into account when it, it determines things like that. As far as the opt-out issue, um, I I think that the court may allow unions to have whatever terms and conditions on union membership that they want with the idea that if membership terms are so onerous uh, that it dissuades people from joining the union at all, 
that they do have that choice. And that's what the Janus decision really promoted. So I think they might take a market-based approach to that. And with respect to the level of benefits for members, there was discussion in the Janus case about how unions would and do have as exclusive representatives the duty to fairly represent their members in their employer relations. And I, I think that you're going to find either before PERB or in the, the courts, um, the courts coming down saying you, you need to at least provide representation to the level of enforcing contractual rights. As far as things like discipline proceedings and court cases regarding discrimination, I think those are uh, likely to be seen as extra contractual. Okay. Interesting. Let me add to Darren's comment. Um, I think what's important for public agency employers to keep in mind is to be careful not to include provisions in their collective bargaining agreements with their unions so they don't get caught up in the middle of these fights between the non-members and the members. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unions might seek in a number of places to add language that would protect them Mm -hmm. in, in the collective bargaining agreement, but our counsel to these agencies are stay out of the fight. Let this play out. It'll take years for the dust to settle, the total impact of Janus to be felt, and I think uh, uh, we haven't seen the end yet. Hmm. Okay, okay, great. So before we close, I want to talk specifically about how our client public agencies might best manage this present moment. So first of all, how can districts avoid toxic negotiations at this present time, whether that be from the climate generally or maybe from neighboring districts where you're seeing the same attorneys, same labor rep on the other side? Lou, do you want to start on that? Certainly. I mean, it's easy, easy to say and provide a formula, but it's, it's very hard to actually achieve. Mm-hmm. Let's, the reality is public agencies can pick their bargaining teams. They cannot pick the team on the other side of the table. Having said that, I think all employers, whether they're public or private, can avoid toxic negotiations and labor strife by working on solving little problems first before they grow, by building relationships with the union leadership and their employees, by being responsive to small problems before they spin out of control, to look for bridges and commonalities rather than focusing on on the differences that they have. Because ultimately, I think employers and employees want the same thing. Mm -hmm. Employers want high morale. They want competitive salaries. They want an effective workforce. And I think those are all the things that the unions and their employees seek as well. What happens, unfortunately, is a perception of the we versus them. And, and when then that mentality develops either among the employees or on the employer side, the division is simply going to be emphasized, the differences are going to be focused upon, and, and the resolution is going to be more difficult because of the conflicts that experience. There are various programs out there. Uh, I know the California Teachers Association has developed interest-based bargaining. There's the labor management initiative that the state has undertaken to try to build relationships. I think those employers that engage in ways to improve the working relationship with their unions and their employees are going to benefit. 
But having said all that, since we don't get to pick who is in the union leadership, it's out of our control. Mm. And you, you can have people who don't share this philosophy, who do prefer an adversarial style, uh, develop on one side or the other. And I'm going to turn that really hard problem over to Darren to talk about what we do when that happens. What do you think, Darren? <laughs> well, thanks, Lou. I, I have to say that, um, you know, in, in some ways, the public employer's role and response to Janice has a similar theme to to the union's response. When the unions had a need through Janice to become more competitive and to show the value of their services, they became more responsive to their constituents. And I think that public agencies need to do the same thing. Uh, in the same vein, you know, unions had to up their game and public agencies have to as well. They need to, to do that and through transparency, through cooperation, through building relationships, it'll build the trust that may have been broken at times in the past to show the constituents, including the uh, union representatives, that the employer is not necessarily the adversary and that the employer is doing the best it can and that the funding that it has is limited and that it's using it to the best, uh, for the best purposes and for the right priorities. And that will help to, um, to alleviate a lot of the tension that exists between unions and, and their leaders, which oftentimes revolves around claims of uh, disputes over how to interpret money and financial information and whether or not employers are doing things a certain way. And by more transparency and honesty, along with doing the right thing, it's uh, it's much more dis- defensible a position for the employers to to approach the bargaining table with. Now, when we have people on the other side of the table who may not care about that and may simply want to have a fight because that's the right thing to do, or it's a way to, to you know increase attention to what they're doing. It's also important, I think, for us to look at our labor relations in a long game approach because we're we're negotiating with the same people, the same unions over a number of years, you know, just as, as school superintendents, city managers, et cetera, will come and go. Generally speaking, you'll have one obnoxious person on the other side who will have to leave at some point as well. And you want to build those relationships with everyone else, build your credibility. And if you need to show why there's a lack of credibility on the other side of the table, to, to help move you forward so that when that opportunity arises to build bridges again, that you've already laid the groundwork for it. Hmm. That's great insight. Let me, let me mention, on, on, on piggyback on what Darren has said, sometimes when we have somebody who's very adversarial and hostile and even toxic on the other side, there may be a temptation to respond in kind. And that's the wrong temptation. I think it's important for employers to take the high road because unions are democratic organizations that reflect the feeling of their membership. And if we are always looking for the high road and the right thing to do, and we appeal to our employees, that toxic leadership is going to change. And it'll change faster if we build a relationship with our employees than if we engage in a tit-for-tat relationship. So while there may be temptation, I think, we're well advised to avoid that temptation. Hmm. Wow. Okay. 
So, Darren, a few minutes ago, you were talking about how in the L.A. strike, UTLA was very effective in its messaging. Can you talk about how school districts and other public agencies can better communicate with the public on these issues when they arise? Are there lessons from LAUSD's experience? I think so. Um, I have to say that I don't have all the answers, but some suggestions I would have for public employers, school districts, college districts, if they're engaged in a, a pitched battle in the, the public arena um, over labor relations would be to make sure that the message is simple, clear, and reaches either the recipient's head or heart or both. And I think that what you had at the LAOSD level was uh, an argument that reached the intellectual understanding of listeners. It was essentially a message saying, that teachers are decently paid, that funding is limited, and that the real enemy is, or, or the real problem is, Sacramento. And I, I think that no one would disagree with that. But what UTLA did was they personalized the, um, the message for their side, and they made it about students. And they were able to communicate a simple enough message that by supporting the teachers, not necessarily about their financial claims, but about charter schools and needing more support at the school sites in this form of psychologists and counselors and social workers, that students were uh, being harmed or suffering because LAUSD was not doing what the union wanted. And I think that we just need to be much clearer, more responsive, and figure out ways through social social media or otherwise to get the message spread on a much broader level than what we do now, which is frequently using the district's website and uh, perhaps sending out press releases. Hmm. Okay. I would say that um, if there was an area where public agencies had a deficit, it was getting it's getting their message out to the public. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most public agencies don't have a public information officer. Most don't communicate to the public, their communities, all the good things that they're doing. So people simply don't know. It's much easier for the union in those situations to build up public support. Mm -hmm. When they become the advocates for students or the community, that should be our job as public agency advocates public agencies, if they get the word out there, uh, it's essential to build public support, not just to combat toxic negotiations or labor strife, but to build public support for funding, Mm -hmm. to increase the inadequacy of of public funding for our communities, for our school districts, for our college districts, so that we can become competitive, so we can provide the kinds of services and programs that our communities want and need. Hmm, that's great insight. Okay. Well, um, as we reach the end of this discussion, I want to turn to the big picture issues. As you mentioned, Darren, here in California, we have a new governor and a new superintendent of public instruction. Do you think the conversation around public employee unions will change in this new era? Can we make some predictions? Darren, do you want to start? Sure. I I think the conversation will continue along the same lines. I, I think California... Culturally, politically, it's it's uh, perhaps on the forefront of 
of, of where we are going nationally, but certainly is a stronghold of support for public employees and their unions. I think that we are seeing a period of change based on the, the context in which we're seeing labor negotiations occur funding-wise, and so uh, that's going to be uh, a bit of an unstable setting until the dust settles. But once it does, I think we'll see at least another five to ten years of stability and normalization. And I believe the pendulum swings, so the level of activism that's occurring now, which is probably viewed as necessary, will probably be viewed as uh, less necessary because things are the way they should be in the future. Lou, do you have thoughts on that? I would say I, I, I share Dar- Darren's thoughts on it. Um, I would add that we have a governor who is um, supportive of public education, public services, and hopefully, I am hopeful anyway, that we'll address some of the funding problems that we have. In California, I think most people recognize that our per-pupil funding for education is among the lowest in the nation. I think we're in the, in the bottom three or four in the country. And that needs to be addressed. We need to improve our public funding for our schools, for our colleges, for public services. And I'm, I'm hopeful this governor is going to come up with new ways to provide that funding that is so sorely needed in California. Okay, my last question for you both how does all this discussion about the role of unions, sparked at least in part by Janice, how is it impacting those folks who receive services from our public agencies? I'm thinking of citizens who receive services from those cities and counties, kids in the classroom. Darren? Well, I, I think that you're seeing um, a level of hyper-attention from all aspects of our society. So I think constituents, residents, citizens of, of, of cities are more attentive and, and interested in getting solutions to the issue that's happening on the street next to me immediately. And uh, teachers are seeing parents, at least in some school districts, becoming much more attentive to what's happening in the classroom and in some, some situations being uh, more vociferous about what they believe are, are wrongs occurring in the classroom. And... I do see this as being a very uh, energized period of time where people are not just complacent and accepting of whatever's happening. That's that's kind of what I'm seeing, and it, it creates a lot of activity, and um, it's important for public agency leaders, school superintendents, city managers, not to get overwhelmed by all that. Lou, closing thoughts? I would say that I think uh, people in the community want their potholes fixed, they want the police arriving when they call 911. They want the fire department responding to emergencies. They want their schools educating students so that they can compete in an in a, a ever-increasing competitive world. And I think the unions have a role in bringing these issues to the public's attention so that the funding levels of public services can be improved to meet the public's expectation. Well, thank you both. This has been a terrific discussion. Really appreciate your time today and all of your insight. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. 
Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Darren. Thank you, Devin. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thanks. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.